Today we come again to chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, We didn't make it through the chapter last time, so we're going to finish it in this lesson. Uh, It is on the church. If you're following along in the hymnal, it's page 863. But first, let's review what we looked at last week. Um, If we speak of the church in its most universal aspect, or the the church as the invisible church, how would we define the church? Put it simply, what what is the invisible church? The elect. Is that what you're going to say? The what? I I didn't hear that. Um, Were you going to say... Okay, so it's, it's the elect... From that, that God has chosen to save, and those whom He will uh, have gathered, are gathering, or will gather you know, into one under Christ the head. And so, this is the church as it will be in glory in the age to come, um, that is currently now being gathered by the means He has appointed um, and is. Invisible because it's a it's a spiritual reality. I mean, not all of them have been gathered into one, or, or, uh, even as it is, um, and even in, in the present, uh, it is uh, invisible to us. It is the elect, and so Scripture also it speaks of the church in that way as the sheep which Christ will gather, whom no one will take out of His hands, uh, whom He He needs to gather and and will gather. Um, Scripture also speaks the church as a visible body, or we might call it the visible church. Well, what is the visible church? Yes. Those who profess faith in Christ and their children. Right. Those who profess the true religion um, and their children, and that's been the case in both Old Covenant and New Covenant. Uh, those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, um, as First Corinthians says, and, and their holy ones as well with them, all of them called to be saints, uh, called to be holy ones separated from the world. And uh, the visible church is where the saved people are, are gathered. You know, outside of it, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. There, there might be some exceptions, but the, the picture that Scripture gives us is the saved being gathered into the visible body of the church, and it's that body that then is purified in the final judgment. But like we saw in the parable of the net, the net is gathering the fish. It doesn't gather all the fish, but it gathers a bunch of fish, and it's that group of fish that's gathered and that's sorted out. Some of them are, are bad fish that are um, are thrown away, but others are put into containers and saved, referring to those who truly believed the Lord Jesus Christ. So are all who are in the visible church saved? No, not everyone in the visible church is saved. But are the people who are saved usually in the visible church? Yes, yes. Um, and it, not as if there's two churches, but you know, two different ways to speak of the church that Scripture uses. And part of what we're dealing with is also just the, the, the fact that this, there's a process going on, you know, that we're not at the end goal here. Um, in the end, there, the visible church and the invisible church will be 
the same, you know, in, in, uh, in the age to come. Uh, but right now, there's a work going on of gathering, of discipling, of um, uh, the call of the gospel, gathering people into the wedding hall, uh, into the net uh, by the gospel. We also looked at the, the resources and the work of the visible church that God has uh, equipped, Christ has equipped the visible church, given it uh, the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God, and also by his word and spirit, make those effectual to the ends for which they are designed, and that end is the, the gathering and perfecting of the elect. Uh, the, the ministry referring to the ministers of the word, uh, we might say ministers of government, you know, all the elders, ministers of mercy, uh, the deacons, um, it's always defined, what are they ministering? The civil government's called a minister, but it's a minister of justice and judgment. Here we're talking about ministers in the church, though. It's probably especially in mind as ministers of the word, but there's also ministers of government, ministers of mercy. Um, there's also oracles referring to scripture, the oracles of God. Uh, the scripture is given to the church. That's a, the treasure of the church. It's to be a, a pillar and ground of the truth as it proclaims that word, that scripture. And the ordinances, such as the reading and preaching of Scripture, the sacraments, prayer, singing, catechizing, church government, um, things that Christ has appointed for his church to do, um, and uh, has done so by his own word. We don't just get to make it up, but he makes these things effectual. Uh, any questions from, from last week, then, on the first three paragraphs of this chapter? All right, well, let's go on then to the fourth paragraph. So it's going to say this Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is speaking of is uh, the one referred to in the previous two paragraphs, the visible church that is Catholic because it is from all nations and languages and, uh, you know, across the world, not limited to one country. Uh, speaking of the visible church, it says, This Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So, the visible church, the Catholic you know, visible church, has been sometimes more visible, sometimes less visible. It's the visible church, but it's not always equally visible in all ages. Can you think of some times where the church was less visible? You think biblical history or church history? Right. Times of persecution, we can think of places today where it suffers that kind of persecution, like in China, uh, where it's, it's less visible. During Elijah, I was the only one. Right. There were still 500. Right. Um, is it five? There's 7,000, right? 7,000 in the middle? Yeah. yeah, but, but the, you got the right idea there. Elijah thinks, I'm, I alone am left. Um, and, and God actually had left a remnant and was still at work. But uh, it certainly was less visible, especially think of in the northern kingdom, at times in the southern kingdom too, where there was idolatry, you know, worship was, was not pure. There were, you know, uh, the company of the faithful seemed uh, like, where was it? But 
God was maintaining it, and Elijah would come across other faithful people, you know, soon enough. Elisha, sons of the prophets, um, and it was simply less visible. Think of any other time? You can think of the Babylonian exile, you know, for example. You think of all the, the temple is destroyed, all the worship that God had instituted there is gone, uh, the, the people are scattered among the nations. They don't have the same outward form uh, and organization that they once had. They don't have their king anymore. Um, and yet, God continued to, to certainly have his church, and uh, they would build up and return, and God would establish them as before. Um, and which brings us to the second point. Not only are there times where it's less visible, but can you think of times where it's more visible? times of revival. Yes, yes, where the word of God is made known with power. It's not only, it's both taught and embraced, right? Uh, We think of biblical history, like with the return to Jerusalem, where the the temple is rebuilt, where people renew their covenants with God, you know, the the worship, the ordinances, the word, all of this is is established visibly and publicly and I uh, think of in, in New Testament times as well, you know, the growth of the church in Acts, where there's times where it's, there's peace and growth and edification of the brothers. There's also times of persecution, but it's not only one or the other. Uh, we shouldn't think that the church is always, you know, not very visible and, you know, barely making it by, uh, or that it's always in a state of perfect prosperity and, and visibility. Um, the Roman Catholic Church might err on the side of thinking it's always going to be extremely visible and organization intact because it's always united with the infallible Pope in Rome. And then you might have some that lean on the more Baptist side where it's like the church is always, you know, this tiny minority, this, this trail of blood. And if, if the church gets too big, obviously it's not a true church. You know, that's uh, kind of this, you know, reaction maybe. But it's more or less, sometimes more, sometimes less visible. But let's define what it means to be visible. You know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. What makes the church visible? Is it the robes and the riches and, you know, big buildings? Is that what makes the church visible? No, no. Um, What makes the church visible? Depending on what you do. Depending, so something to do with what you do, not just the, the building and... And the clothes. The word of God is being preached and that's being shared and going out. Right, the word of God being preached and going forth. So in the, in the paragraph itself, and that's the first thing that it mentions, it, it lists basically three criteria um, under the, the, speaking of more or less pure, but I think we could apply this to also to more or less visible, that the purer it is, the more visible it is. Um, Although, if you want to think of its definition as the visible church being those who profess the true religion and their children, really the, the uh, amount to which they profess the true religion, clearly and publicly, that would probably be preeminently what makes it visible or not. Uh, but we can also look at, as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, public worship performed more or less purely in them. So... You can think of, you know, evaluating the, the church at large, how visible is the church by these criteria, or in a particular church, how pure is this church based on these things. Um, and then, as we'll get into the next 
uh, article, some churches so degenerate as to become synagogues of Satan, where they don't have these things at all. You know, uh, there's, there's a spectrum here, but uh, some so far off, fall off the spectrum, you know, because the, the, the doctrine of the gospel is not taught. The worship is not performed. Uh, the ordinances are not observed. Um, but there can be all churches, we're going to get into the next paragraph, are subject to both mixture and error. So uh, there's going to be a uh, more or less purity in particular churches. But what do we want? We want pure churches, right? Yeah, as much as possible. <laughs> so these are all things to uh, seek to, to keep pure and entire and practice and embrace. Um, so we want the doctrine of the gospel taught and embraced in them, um, to, to profess the faith and for the faith to be taught. We need to keep the faith. Uh, this is uh, essential to our identity. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, that it is built on the foundation of Christ and his message, the apostles and prophets being the foundation, right? Christ being the cornerstone. Well, what does it mean to be built on the apostles and prophets? means to be built on the word that they taught, which we have in Scripture. Um, how purely the ordinances are administered in them. You know, probably especially thinking of the sacraments, but uh, other things we mentioned, the reading and preaching of Scripture, sacraments, prayer, singing, catechizing church government. Um, how, how purely are these things being administered? And how purely public worship is being performed in them. So when the church got gathered, well, the New Testament, New Covenant Church began to be gathered on, on the day of uh, Pentecost, or really sprung out and expanded at Pentecost, uh, what's it mentioned the church doing? You know, those who received the word, you know, they were baptized, uh, they broke bread together, so we have the sacraments, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching uh, and the fellowship, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. You know, so we have the the doctrine of the gospel taught and embraced, um, the reading and preaching that of that word continues, the sacraments are administered in accordance with what Christ had instituted, uh, they're, they're praying, they're, uh, and so we have these things, and that's what kind of constitutes the, the church or makes it visible. Um, in 1 Corinthians, there was a problem with the church that was not as pure as it should have been, right? That the church in Corinth had some problems. What were some of the problems the church in Corinth had? Or what are some of the things that Paul told them to do to correct them? Right. So I think the first several chapters, he emphasizes the gospel and how the gospel would unify us and humble us uh, and speaks of basically the doctrine of the gospel being taught and embraced. He talks about um, the sacraments and church discipline, uh, the need to uh, partake of the sacraments in a worthy manner and uh, to, to exercise church discipline, uh, that it might not be profaned. And he spends a lot of time on public worship, that public worship was becoming disordered and unedifying. And, of course, sacraments was part of that too, but he gets in chapter 14 as well. So these are areas in which uh, they needed to uh, work on greater purity. And yet there still was a church there. Even though it had faults and needed to be corrected, uh, there still was uh, a degree of worship and, and the sacraments and the gospel. Uh, for the time, it still was a true church. 
Any questions on, on these things? Um, this is, I think, somewhat of an improvement. Uh, traditionally, the reformers talked about the marks of the church, and Calvin would have said the, the, the word and sacraments basically being the marks of the church. Belgic Confession, the Scottish Confession, would add church discipline as well as a mark of the church. Um, and I think we'd find those things in this paragraph, although it adds worship in it as well, and embracing not only teaching the gospel, but also recognizes that there's going to be um, more or less pure in each particular church. Uh, if we say that it has to be pure on all three of these things for it to be a true church, we're not going to have many true churches uh, very soon. Um, but recognizing that these things must be present and in accord with uh, God's word. And that really leads us to the fifth article, uh, getting at this nuance, recognizing though there still are a distinction here between true churches and false churches. It says, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church, there shall always there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So if you look at the church in the Bible, it, it shouldn't take long to recognize that even the purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and air. Um, you think of the, maybe the New Testament church with the, just after Pentecost, you have the gospel going forth. Maybe that would be the high point of purity in the church. And, and then you have people dying because they lied to the church and you know, you have uh, problems, mixture, um, right away. Um, you have uh, the, the magician who's baptized and then tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Or you have, uh, in the Old Testament, great revivals under kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, and yet uh, we find a great deal of, of uh, not everyone uses those opportunities well, and there's still uh, mixture and error uh, in the church. But, and, and beyond that, some churches have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Uh, in Revelation, it uses that phrase, the synagogue of, of Satan, that there were those who rejected Christ, uh, who said they were Jews, but were not, you know, probably Jewish synagogues that had rejected Christ and were now being hostile to the church. Um, we might see a, a similar comparison within Revelation of the great prostitute with the bride. That there was uh, a body that was apostate, having rejected Christ, was no longer the the church, and yet there was the bride. There continued to be a church, uh, a, a remnant of people who professed Christ. And there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks the apostles, you know, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we here first see the confession of the faith about Christ being essential to the church that he's about to speak of. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for the flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so, who's building the church? 
God, Christ himself as the Savior and the King of the church. And will he fail? Will the gates of hell win? No, they will never win. Um, He will build his church, and of its growth and increase, as Isaiah says, you know, there, there will be no end. It will continue to be established. He will be with us to the end of the age. The last article here is pretty short in the American version. It says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. Um, Jesus does not appoint any surrogate husband to his church. Uh, no, no additional head, no vice uh, regent over his church, and that would include the Pope is not that head. Uh, and even people like John the Baptist and Paul, they describe themselves as friends of the bridegroom who brought the bride to the husband to be espoused to him, not to take his place. Uh, not to usurp his position. Uh, They are ministers of Christ who administer his word and sacraments, but there's no one who can take his place as the head of the church. And he's not appointed any one person to be ruler of his church. The authority he gave Peter, he also gave likewise to all the apostles. Um, And then they ordained elders to rule the church after them. Uh, And so it's in the hands of, of, of many, not one person. Now, the original confession of faith went on to say, of the Pope, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? Uh, That's what the original confession of faith said. They wanted to add a little bit more about who the Pope was um, because they believed the Pope to be the Antichrist, the one prophesied in Scripture. Uh, Not only the Antichrist, but the man of sin, the one prophesied in Second Thessalonians. Um, and that was the typical position during the Reformation. Now, over the centuries, that has been called into question, and that's not usually uh, held today, although there's still some people that hold it. But uh, this was uh, amended or omitted in 1903, Uh, one of the few edits from 1903 that was retained by the OPC and the PCA when it adopted the Confession of Faith. Um, Personally, I think there's a better case for him being the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians than for him to be the Antichrist, although both cases would be debatable. Uh, The Antichrists are false teachers in the church, uh, those who deny Christ. Um, They're only referred to in 1 and 2 John. But uh, the man of sin is a more debatable character, and I think we discussed it. I forget in which context uh, that was in, but uh, it's at least debatable who, who it is and how he would connect with the Pope or not. But in any case, what the Confession says and what it retained is clear enough and uh, agreed upon, certainly by all Protestants and probably Eastern Orthodox too, Uh, that there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. And so for him to usurp usurp that role uh, is a great uh, sin uh, and the claims that are made on his behalf. All right, any questions on this chapter of the church? Sure. 
and even elders, even though are still subject to the head of Christ. And so they, it's very important for them to follow God's word. Right, right. Yes, uh, all the those that do rule the church um, are subject to the head and to his word. And that's also one advantage of the Presbyterian church government, um, at least when it works right, is that they are all subject to one another, too. Um, but yes, all, all of them, uh, the congregation, elders, are subject to Christ and... Um, are subject to his word then as well are not infallible all right well next chapter is going to be one of my favorites uh, of the communion of saints which is really kind of part two of on the church although that was this lesson part two on the chapter 25, but we'll continue speaking of the church as the communion of saints and the communion that the saints have in one another and ought to show to one another, and that'll be what we'll look at next week. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for your love for your church and your protection of us all. We pray that you would work true faith in all of us, granting us perseverance to run the race to the end, that we might receive that eternal glory which you have uh, stored up for your church. We pray that you would uh, work among your church to send forth the gospel of salvation to gather in the lost uh, in great multitudes, that the nations would come to the house of the Lord and to, to become disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.